this is Daryl. Thank you for listening to the Total Soccer Show. We've got a great show for you today, profiling four great teams from history. There's the Hunved team of the 50s, the Manchester City team from a couple years ago when they won the Premier League with 100 points. There's Barcelona from the early 90s. This is Cruyff's dream team with Stoichkov and Laudrup and Guardiola in his playing days and a really exciting playing style. It was really fun to watch that team. And also the New York Cosmos of the late 70s. This is the team with Pelé in New York. This is the team that lived it up at Studio 54 and then went and won matches. This is Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto and Chinalia and some other guys as well. Before we get into those four teams, today's show is sponsored by Remarkably Remote. How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably Remote wants to know. Remarkably Remote is a new podcast from GoToMeeting and it will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, Remarkably Remote will share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform. Maybe use the one you're using right now or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's T-I-P-S. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's still going strong in the second month of lockdown. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Still going strong, still mostly sane, although the appeal of The Shining is growing. I find myself increasingly wanting to watch that and I don't know if it's a good idea. Why would it not be a good idea? Well, like, there's the story that, like, the uh, the Antarctic Research Facility, like, when they go to their skeleton crew, they watch The Thing and they watch The Shining. And that feels like it would be fun, but simultaneously I worry that, like, oh, he just sits in front of his typewriter and slowly loses his mind. It feels a bit like how I feel with a <laughs> pile of books and notes next to me about some of these teams we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> Do you think you'll be in front of your microphone saying, red rum, red rum, Honved, 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 exactly, yeah. I mean, at least, I think we only see him write, like, eight words that whole movie so at least i have been writing some stuff we've been creating content so maybe we're not yeah. going so stir crazy i have heard though that all podcast and no socializing makes taylor a dull boy <laughs> makes taylor a lunatic i think is, is the better way to put that but yeah makes homer something something i believe is <laughs> how that goes don't mind so, if i do Dale. don't mind if i do today today we are here for two more matchups in the international champions champions cup of history sponsored by back to the future part three the best back to the future installment <laughs> you, you switched it and i like it <laughs> it's got horses in it taylor it's the wild west uh, you're the one did they film that concurrently did they film or not concurrently but like did they film them back to back is that what they did and then they like staggered the release or something like that I want to say that's yes. I want to say that I heard that, but I'm not really confident enough to stand behind it. Yeah, because that third one definitely has has moments that feel like, I don't know, we're almost done. Just film the scene. I don't know. Just say the lines. Whatever. We're, we're getting there. I'm just there. imagining There was so much buzz. I vaguely remember it because I was maybe six years old. Mm-hmm. There was so much buzz about Back to the Future Part 2 because you saw the future and there was that jacket that dried itself and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just imagine the marketers thinking, just you wait, guys. The next one's got a train in it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it does do the fun thing of time travel where the ancestor to the person who's the bad guy looks exactly like the like the person. That's well yeah. done. So you can have the same actor. Well done. Well, yeah, what you future. do? Hire someone else? No way. <laughs> no way. All right. So we are getting in uh, yeah. Magic Train. Again, mm-hmm. not as cool as a DeLorean. And, and we're going back in time uh, to look at some teams from the past, some the distant past, and some the very recent past. I, knowing how poorly DeLoreans ended up working out, I feel like a Magic Train might be the way to go there. You trust the train. I guess the train sticks around longer. Right? It works for the good place. It may as well work for our time machine purposes. <laughs> Today's matchups are um, mid fifties Honved mm-hmm. of Pushkas fame versus twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen <laughs> Manchester City. The, the obvious matchup points team. There's a fifty plus year difference between yeah. sixty plus year difference between these two teams. Mm-hmm. The second matchup is Johan Cruyff's dream team, 1990s Barcelona, which I very much enjoyed watching, spoiler alert, versus specifically 1977 New York Cosmos. Mm Because that is when it's not just Pelé, it's also Carlos Alberto and Franz Beckenbauer. And they really basically put a team together. Let's make sure Pelé wins a championship before he retires. Yes, the the modern-day MLS All-Stars right there. The modern-day MLS All-Stars. So couple of really bizarre matchups, but four fascinating teams to talk about, in my humble opinion. I, I, would, agree. I would agree. I would agree, and for varying reasons, and very different yeah. reasons at that, because you've got like the modern team, you've got uh, Pep Guardiola, the player, combined with Johan Cruyff, the manager, you've got the, uh, you've got the Cosmos and everything going on with the Cosmos, and then Honved, <laughs> I found obviously difficult to watch uh, footage of, but very interesting to read about and learn about how they sort of developed and uh, approached the game of soccer. Absolutely. Let's start then with sure. Hunved. We're looking at roughly 1954 to 1956, mm-hmm. not least because of the Hungarian Revolution, the Soviet yeah. tanks come in, and a handful of these players basically never go back after 1956, right? They um, escape to Europe to play for Barcelona and Real Madrid. They but literally don't, they don't come back. That's literally they it. <laughs> they stay yep. in Spain and find yep. some teams. Uh, I mean, that's why Pushkas is in Spain, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're focusing on when these guys were together playing for Hunved. Kispest Hunved, Kispest. the army team, Taylor, the army mm-hmm. team. Kispesti Athletikai Club, founded in 1909, name changed to Honved because uh, with the takeover, they become the team of the military, so you want to reflect that. And Honved means like, I think it means something like private in the army is basically the uh, the gist of that one. Yeah, so it's the army team. And the way this team is put together, as I understand it, is they have a wonderful transfer system in Soviet countries <laughs> where if you're the army team, yep. you can conscript any players you want. And get them on your team. Yep. I mean, that's essentially how that goes down. Because I think the idea is uh, Gustav Sebes, uh, the head of the Hungarian national team at this time, also very influential in Hungarian society uh, and in communist politics. So he kind of... Uh, wants these club teams, these bigger club teams, to be playing the way the national team plays. So it's all this kind of synchronized system. Yeah. Everybody gets familiar. And so it's the yeah, original, you... it's the original U.S. Soccer Development Academy, right? <laughs> but this time it's mandatory and in military uniforms. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> very so much you... not pay to play. <laughs> Decidedly not. Uh, and I know you looked it up too, but I thought it's always interesting to me to read about. Obviously, it leads to like horrific situations, but it's interesting when you have these takeovers of like the vying for which organization gets which team. Because what M- MTK, I think, becomes the team of the secret police. Ferenc Varos are too right wing. They're too out there, so they can't be trusted to be good communists. So it falls to this team who get like uh, name changed and incorporated into Bucharest. And now they're this big club of the army. Now they're going to have all these uh, amazing players who will go on to do amazing things for the national team. 
I'm going to say Budapest, not Bucharest. But oh, get, excuse me. Yes, yes. I get what mm-hmm. you're saying. Yeah, Kispest is like a little suburb of... of uh, no of Romania. No Romania I here. I understand it. We'll yeah. talk about Stau Bucharest in a later episode. We sure will. Um, but yeah, so they already had Pushkas, right? So they, yeah. you know, Hunved were not, not a bad team to begin with. But once they become the army team, they can conscript um, Kosic, Sibor, mm-hmm. and Budai. And if essentially have four of the main five attackers that play for the Hungarian national team. Yeah, that's not a bad way to start. And then, uh-uh. and then, as you mentioned, they already had Pushkas. They already had uh, Boschik, I think is how you pronounce that. Joseph Boschik, the uh, the kind of holding midfielder slash defender slash midfielder. Yeah. But like to have those two key players so early on, uh, I think in 1943 is when they both signed. Like to have these two kind of central figures that you can play through and and kind of build around or conscript into, if you want to go that route. <laughs> uh, yes, you've got the kind of foundations there, but then you add in lots of key performers and you've got a solid squad overall. And then this team becomes quite famous because they, they tour around the world, right? right? Like, especially for Wolves, this is a key game is when um, Hunved come and play Wolves in 1954. Wolves win 3-2 and the British press are absolutely over the moon because yeah. the Hungarian national team are just beating up on the England national team. But the dirty secret to that game is that Hunved went 2-0 up playing some beautiful passing football, which is what they were known for. And I'm sure we'll get into that. And Wolves decided to absolutely drench the pitch with water at yep. half-time mm-hmm. and say, all right, Hungarians, try passing the ball around on this. And then Wolves played some classic Stan Cullis long ball and won 3-2. Did you read about how that became influential in, like, later on that, like, managers would make them practice with, like, like uh, waterlogged balls and they would have to train on wet pitches to get used to that? Because they knew after that they learn, oh, this is how the teams are going to deal with us, so we've got to adapt. I like that sort of approach to uh, dealing with... Uh, bad circumstances. And and this is like really key to me. Remember, this is the very early days of yeah. um, uh, uh, what, what I'm going to call travel, you know, where teams would travel to play each other in, in uh, high-profile competitions because we've got floodlights and all that. They are re- Hunved are really ahead of the game in terms of sports science, as I understand it, right? Like there was a big yeah. thing of Sebes would, you know, tell all the teams in the Hungarian league and eventually the Hungarian national team, mm-hmm. hey, smoking's bad for you. Drinking's bad for you. Let's try swimming. Like all these kinds of things that <laughs> like the average man knows now, yeah. right? But at the time, it's kind, of, it's kind of cutting edge sports science to have football players go swimming. Exactly. And then you've got that combined with the Iron Curtain nature of things, meaning that like it was difficult to find a lot of footage of this team to learn more about. Like, like You can't really find lineups for this Honved team. There, there are some guesses, but for the most part, it is a team that are trained and created uh, behind borders, behind a wall of secrecy. And so that does factor into it a little bit is why they're able to kind of blitz teams early on is this is just a completely new style that is, com- is completely different from the way the English game is gone. And so when you're kind of thrown into that it can be a little bit discombobulating so i enjoyed getting to experience that a little bit in doing the research of like oh there's just not that much information about this team i think because that was specifically the way they wanted to operate so briefly can you describe the style what is the style of soccer that hunved are playing that made for example wolves panic and pour water all over the pitch at half time (laughs) i mean i I can give you like a basic (laughs) gist and then i can explain The, the thing that is most interesting to me is how they kind of got here but the the very basic thing i would say if you're going with the kind of like if you just want names on a piece of paper uh to give you a lineup it's it's sort of a 424 i almost think of it as like a 4114 is maybe the easiest way to understand it um and then you 
do have like those those wingers will drop in. You will get some more like midfield defensive presence. But that's the basic structure, and that allows for that kind of holding midfielder, uh, Boschik, Joseph Boschik, who I mentioned before, to be sort of the fulcrum that can then facilitate the attack. But the big tactical innovation that I want to focus on is basically the number nine becoming a number ten, which is a thing that that happens with Hungary. Uh, did you read much about why that happens? I don't, but we don't have Hidaguti, right? The number Mm-mm. nine who drops deep for Hungary. We don't have Hidaguti do on not. this Hunved team. Mm-mm. He plays for MTK instead. He does. That was one that they could not get. Again, the club of the secret police, probably hard to pry away some of their prized assets. So instead, we think they go with Ferenc Machos. That seems to be who it was, at least in that uh, the game in 1956, I believe, when they do not come back from Spain. That's what they're there for as a European Cup game against Athletic Bilbao, I think it was. Uh, and that's who was playing in that role, at least in that era. So it's safe to say that it was probably Machos then. But yeah, it's him dropping in and facilitating attacks. And basically, even though he's wearing a number nine, being a number 10. But I'm assuming that the the big um, surprise in style isn't just that the number nine comes deep. From what I saw in the footage, it's that this team passed the ball around in a more committed possession style than, for example, English teams were used to. I watched a bit of the England-Hungary game because it's a lot of the same players. And the commentator is literally shocked when he's saying, and look at that, even the defender is Mm -hmm. using the inside of his foot to pass the ball. Yeah, I I read that one thing. Imagine that being so revolutionary, but it was. The the commentator was apparently like so amazed by Ferenc Puskas doing keepy uppies that he like kind of could. This was the England game when it was England versus uh, Hungary that he couldn't even focus on what was happening because like look at them with their passing and their juggling. They would like what are they circus performers and then they get destroyed <laughs> on the field. the The thing that I, that I heard that I think I think is the case is basically that at this point in general football history, the WM has supplanted the two three five. It's become this dominant thing. But what you then have is that number nine, especially in England is this big target striker. That's the way the game has evolved in England. You've got this this target striker who's up top, who can run through the line, who can knock people over, who can win headers. Contrast that with war-torn Hungary in the post-World War II era. Not a lot of big, giant men hanging around, and that's basically what Sebes kind of had to deal with, was you don't have these physically imposing people who can handle that sort of physicality. And very similar to what we'll probably talk about a lot with Pep Guardiola, and I'm going to believe that Guardiola likes Sebes. He just looks at what he has and thinks, I cannot play that way. That style will not work. I've got to do what I can to put my players into a position where they can win. And what that means is changing it around, essentially almost going with like an MM is what I think Jonathan Wilson wrote. Uh, and then you have a lot of passing. You're not trying to compete with the physicality and the size of, of your opposition. You're trying to outpass them and outscore them. And that's pretty much exactly what both Hungary and Honved do. And key to it all, of course, is the most famous player on this team. Yeah. Ferenc Pushkas. Yes, so we've sir. talked about Pushkas in his Real Madrid days when we talked about that sort of uh, Galacticos 1.0 team of 55 to 60. And we both noted that the man was a little overweight in those days. A little bit. Little right? bit. So the footage I saw, um, and remember, no smoking, no drinking, going swimming. It's not quite skinny Pushkas because I think Mm-mm. he just wasn't built that way. He was a stout man, yeah. but it's in, it's in shape Pushkas, right? And so that means that he's just a little bit sharper from what I can see, a little bit quicker on his feet, a little bit more nimble in a time when soccer players really weren't that nimble. But he still has that aggressive, powerful left-footed shot that is always going in the top corner. 
He really is. It's uh, he has become one of my favorite players, like from history, to get to watch uh, from his yeah. time with Madrid and then with his Honved team. And just knowing that he is a name that, like, even if you're not sure who they are or you don't know that much about them, like uh, when in that time period, you know who Ferenc Puskas is, uh, and you certainly know him later on. Uh, but like, yeah, what he brings to Real Madrid is established here with his ability to score from distance and hit uh, waterlogged balls in a way that they don't uh, should not be able to be hit. But then, <laughs> but then he. Can sort of lead the line. He can drop in a little bit. Not really what he's going to be doing, but all around, Ferenc Puskas is the name we know for a reason. Yeah, is, I guess this, the best way to put it. The thing I love is, I mean, it's one thing to have like an incredibly powerful shot and then an incredibly accurate shot. I mean, mm-hmm. if he actually was going to do some army service, he should have been a sniper, right? Yes. <laughs> um, yes. But he also <laughs> has the foot skills at the top of the box to just yep. make that extra bit of space for himself. And especially back in the days when you know tackles were just sliding in mm-hmm. and bodies were being thrown everywhere if you were the guy who could drag the ball back and manipulate it to the left a little bit and make the space for yourself and then bang top corner you were unstoppable and that's kind of what was going on with push gas in this 54 to 56 period yeah and and and, and then you've got uh players who can complement around that we we don't want to get too much into like how the game's going to go or how they're going to maybe approach their opposition but we should just say oh, like, when they uh, when they play 21st century manchester city yeah it's going to be interesting it's going to be tough i've got some ways i think this game could go uh but i wanted to mention uh uh zoltan uh Zibor. Uh, again yeah. i do not speak hungarian i apologize but like their their left winger who reminds me it's it's a lot of similarities to what we've kind of already talked about with that madrid team in the 1950s as well as that santos team uh bella goodman claims he's the one who who brought the 424 to Brazil, and that's where that kind of came from. Bella Gutman coaches Honved, we should note. So I think there are some similarities in the way they want to like aggressively attack, get to the end line, put those balls in. But again, they don't have that target guy necessarily. I know uh, Koshis is good in the air, but I think you kind of have that variety of attack that, again, is sort of revolutionary for the time period of you're not just kicking it long and heading it in. You're not just trying to run through and trample everybody. You're passing the ball but also scoring headers. Now I'm confused. Final notes, and at least from me, and mm. one of the reasons we had to include this team um, in this in this tournament to find the greatest team of all time, is that this hundred team and yeah. their like mini world tour is part of what it's part. It's the catalyst essentially. It's part of the motivation for the European Cup, right. right? For the Champions League, for having this continental competition because Hunved were going all over the place and really challenging teams that thought they were big. Yeah, like, I mean, the, it's that Wolves The game, British yeah. press really celebrated the Wolves' win, I think because they feared that this team was going to come and hurt us, and especially after Hungary had destroyed England so convincingly home and away. So, yeah, this is the team that I think lays the groundwork for the European Cup and unfortunately only gets to participate in a couple of games yeah. because the revolution happens or the uprising it's eventually yeah. crushed by Soviet tanks right? yeah the crushing happens, is the key thing yeah yeah while they're away for the for the second leg of I think one of their first games in the European Cup yeah so we'll talk more about maybe what would have happened to this team and in, in this game my final thing I just wanted to say is that is a very English thing of like oh we won well then we'll participate in this competition if they've gotten smashed by Honved do you think the European Cup happens do English teams ever play in it I don't know. I I think there's definitely um, a trend in England at the time of well, if we don't play against people, then they can't say they're better than us. So let's <laughs> let's stick with that. Um, but yeah, once the uh, once the the push gas was out of the bag, yeah, um, <laughs> all of English soccer was in trouble. I think. All right, should we get to uh, their opponents, or should we talk about today's sponsor before we do that? Let's talk about today's sponsor. Right. Today's show, Mr. Taylor Rockwell, mm-hmm. is sponsored by. 
Podiumware. Yeah. Podiumware is a family-owned business based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, they make custom team apparel. It's a custom team apparel manufacturer, and it's turning the world of team soccer kit ordering on its head. It is indeed. I will say up front, though, when we first found out that podium where we're going to sponsor the show, it makes sense that it's like the uniform you wear when you've won your medal and you're standing on the podium. But I think if they have to pivot, if they want to add another branch to this business, they could go with like business suits for when you're giving presentations at a podium, which is kind of what I thought it was <laughs> at first. But this makes way more sense. But right now it is actually neither of those things, because though they do provide custom designs and a full line of soccer apparel, all made to order in their St. Lu- uh, Paul, not St. Louis, St. Paul factory, um, they have pivoted because of COVID-19, to creating face masks. They're making yep. face masks for you to wear when you're out and about uh, so that you can uh, feel safe but still support you know, local, independent, uh, American-made companies. Uh, and then maybe once we do get some semblance of normalcy, maybe your teams start operating, your amateur teams, your youth teams, maybe you just want some jerseys, then you can go to Podium Wear and see uh, what they have and how it can all work out. So we would encourage you to visit podiumwear.com to get your face mask today. It can, yep. it can be custom made for your entire team if you want. But also bookmark and remember podiumwear.com for when all this is over and when we can start ordering soccer kits to play against each other again. <laughs> remember podiumwear.com. Check them out today. And when you do, you'll be supporting American manufacturing jobs. And let's not kid each other, Taylor. We are going to need jobs when all this is over. We, we certainly are. What we're not going to need is maybe uniforms of this era. I don't know if we want, like, lace collar or, like, uh, like, like where you have to, like, tie up the, the collar on the, on the shirt. Do you want that, Daryl? Should we go with that for our next uh, THP uniforms? Is that what Hanved are wearing? I'm assuming so. I'm yeah. assuming it's, like, the lace-up jerseys and the leather boots. Well, I will Although say leather boots still exist, so that's not that big of a deal. Their opponents, uh, 2017 mm-hmm. to 2019 Manchester City, will be wearing something slightly more lightweight and breathable. You think? <laughs> I would imagine. So this Manchester City team that we're entering yeah. into this greatest team of all time tournament, it is not this year's Manchester City team, right? It's mm-hmm. not the current City team. Get that team out of your head. Get this out. is the team where Vincent Company is at centre-back. Yeah. This is the team where Fernandinho is in his proper position of holding midfield and pivot. This is the team where Leroy Sané is not injured and he's going at you. Mm-hmm. This is the team that won the Premier League with 100 points and followed it up the next season by basically going up against a perfect Liverpool team, going toe-to-toe the whole year and coming out as winners. Back-to-back Premier League winners. So decent is what you're saying? More than decent. Do, do you remember how unstoppable they were? Yeah. We kind of got bored of reviewing Man City matches in 2017-18 yep. because it was just predictable that they would destroy opponents. This it was be- this was the shark team. It becomes it was, and they became a frustrating team to cover because, to your point, either they're destroying teams three nil. Or do they lose, but then a lot of times they lose because it's like a very defensive team and like some things go wrong. But like in our line of work... That two times they lost. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, but that's what I mean is like because otherwise you're just constantly talking about like, yep, they beat Burnley again. They did the same thing they've been doing. And it becomes this weird thing from an analysis standpoint of you only kind of talk about good teams when they lose because that's when they're most interesting. But since this team didn't lose very often, I guess we don't have to fall into that trap. They did score a lot of goals as well. That they in that 2017-18 season, mm-hmm. when they won the Premier League with 100 points, which is a record, by the way, they scored 106 goals, conceded 27 goals. I went back and looked, you know, the list of results, and there were so many 4-0, 5-0, couple of like 7-1, I think, wins in there. So many high-scoring games where, I mean, it says to me that this Man City team would score early and often and not take their foot off of your throat. 
yes, that, that, that is pretty precisely what they were going for and is kind of the style that uh, Pep Guardiola brings with him. To your point, I remember when, or to your earlier point, I remember when he was get, clearly going to be going from Bayern Munich to Manchester City and just thinking like, well, they're going to win the title forever. I did not see Liverpool <laughs> sort of elevating the way they have to being, the, to being this like uh, full-on challenger to Man City. But knowing sort of like the financial largesse or the artificially created financial largesse that Pep Guardiola was going to be inheriting combined with the stints he had had, you kind of see this team and the way it's going to go. And that's pretty much exactly how it went down of he makes the kind of routine tough decisions that we've come to expect from Pep Guardiola taking over a club. Joe Hart is waved goodbye. Uh, And then he goes about sort of getting his players on board for this system, but then adjusting it to their individual strengths and weaknesses. And you see the results. They score a bunch of goals. They win a bunch of games. The key thing at the start of this 2017-18 season, it, it, it is those reinforcements, Taylor. He brings in Aderson to play in goal, and we're all wowed at Aderson's yeah. distribution, right? Because he's able to just spread the field and find the feet of like Sterling or Sane really quickly upfield. He also spends big, big money on fullbacks, right? He is done with the collar-offs of the world. He yeah. spends big money on Kyle Walker to have a, an attacking right-back. He spends big money on Benjamin Mendy to have an attacking left-back. And he spends decent-sized money, I think it's still at like $25 million or so, on Danilo yeah. to have a guy that can do both, right-back and left-back. Mm-hmm. He absolutely um, reinvigorates uh, City's attacking fullbacks. Just sprinkling a little Bernardo Silva on top, so you got your sp- yourself a spare silver in case David Silva's getting old. Mm-hmm. And that that's the team that Manchester City are sending out to absolutely destroy people. You end up with um, either Aguero or Jesus, or sometimes both, being the, the centre forwards. You get um, Sane and Sterling going down the wings. You get Walker and like Mendy or Danilo overlapping and doing the classic Man City cutback, right? Cut back to the top of the box. And then in central midfield, ahead of Fernandinho, you've got Kevin De Bruyne mm-hmm. and Bernardo Silva or David Silva or Ilke Gundogan. This team... It, it just seemed like there was just a, an overflow of talent coming at you. And it was like, it was like a wave coming at you. You know what? I'm going to go with Benjamin Mendy's um, analogy. It's like a shark coming at you. <laughs> and, and, and this is where, with everything you've just said, I would like to kind of focus down on Pep Guardiola for just another moment. We're going to talk about Pep Guardiola a lot in this show. But he's a person who I already really like, enjoyed learning about and knew was a genius. But the more we learn about him, the more I'm sort of like, I, I don't. I could not be like him, but I appreciate the way he is because he is ruthless. I think he wants to win at all costs and is thus obsessed with details. But some of those like fullbacks you mentioned, there is that narrative of like, well, didn't he bring in Claudio Bravo? Why did he have to bring in Aderson? Didn't he already spend fifty million on fullbacks? Why does he have to bring in more? And he is just very practical. If you're less familiar with that side of Pep Guardiola, he is a person who just thinks like, nope, that guy is not doing what I need him to do. I'm not going to keep going square peg round hole. I think he t- he takes a page from Sebes, he takes a page from Johan Cruyff as well, and makes those. T- tough decisions, but I think that shows his level of commitment. It seems like the players then buy in, and even though he has this massive depth of players, he still is able to kind of get the best out of each and every one of them. You don't hear as much about discontent, at least not in this time period. You don't hear about players feeling like they're not included, even those who only make 10 appearances in one season still seem to be very much bought into the system. I mean, it's exciting, right? Especially in the early oh, days, yeah. I think it's really exciting, the the ideas that Guardiola brings in. I imagine he's really intellectually uh, stimulating, right? You could see Raheem Sterling learn a whole new side of the game. There's that famous video. Of, yeah. Sterling was already there, right, when Guardiola mm-hmm. arrived. There's that famous video of Guardiola showing Sterling how to position yeah. his body so that he's always like ready to receive the ball, but also able to, to be in a position to attack. And it, it kind of changes Sterling's game. I think he scores 18 goals from the wing in that 2017 
2018 season does Raheem Sterling. So this is, it's, yeah, it's an incredible thing where he improves the players he's got. Like, no one knew that Fernandinho was the second coming of Sergio Busquets no. until Guardiola I didn't know if it was Fernandinho City. or Fernando. Put it that way. Remember right, when they had, just like they had two? two? <laughs> yeah, it was just yeah. two Brazilian midfielders that were easily yeah. confused because they both just did stuff in central midfield. And suddenly, Fernandinho is this, this like, perfect pivot and you think of him as one of the best midfielders in the world. That doesn't happen unless Guardiola takes over. No, it really doesn't. And that is that does seem to be a thing that uh, Guardiola is very good at doing it is like sort of speaking to players one-on-one and instructing them on how to sort of adjust their game only slightly so that it dramatically improves about spacing, about positioning, about passing, about movement, what have you. But like Sterling, to your point, I remember like it's strange to go back and think, but there was that time period of like after he leaves Liverpool where it's like, oh, he's this sort of really promising, exciting, fast English winger, but he can be a little bit wasteful. We don't really know how best to get like the best out of him or where he really fits in, but we know he's going to be good, we think. And then suddenly now... I think of him as just this untouchable world-class player, and it is certainly because of the work he's put in and the growth he's had, but a lot of that comes down to that system and that style under Guardiola. And if you'd like to hear more about that system and that style, mm-hmm. um, I put out an episode of Soccer 101 uh, yeah, last did. night. Um, it's about 10 to 13 minutes long, describing the basics of positional play, which is what Guardiola is all about. And this Man City team is one of the, the beautiful examples of positional play at its finest in 2017 to roughly 2019. He's basically trying to rebuild a little bit right now, right? Um, Final thing I want to say on this team, Taylor, the most impressive thing to me is they are the only team I can think of to invite the documentary crew in Mm -hmm. and then do really, really well while the cameras are rolling. (laughs) It's usually a Sunderland-style disaster or an England not qualifying for the 1994 World Cup-style disaster when you invite the cameras in to 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 follow you around for a season. 100 points with the cameras rolling. Imagine if the cameras weren't there. 200 points. Easy. I still haven't seen that. How involved is Pep in that? Like, Is he willing to talk to the cameras or does he seem sort of just annoyed by the whole experience? Also have not seen it. Okay, there we go. I really should. I really should watch it. I keep meaning to, and then, and then it, for some reason, it doesn't quite bite me. And mm-hmm. maybe it's because uh, people tell me it's fascinating, but maybe it's because there's no big failure that we think maybe there's no big drama. Yeah, you know what I mean. Think, That's. Yeah, I think that yeah. might be my stumbling block with watching that watching that documentary. It's on Amazon Prime, by the way, if anyone's interested. I'm sure there's like nitpicky moments, but yeah, for the most part, it makes more sense to focus on the historically good uh, soccer team that you get to cover. Also, speaking yep. of historically good, that positional play episode was uh, genuinely very good, very informative, and uh, concise in the best possible way. Because I still struggle to understand positional play. <laughs> I still struggle to understand lots of things, uh, and and you uh, you did a very good job of explaining it. I'm laughing because. I was asking Bobby Warshaw via text about, I'm slightly embarrassed by this one, I was like, is there such a thing, like, can you think of a player who's like a false nine, but can also lead the line and kind of, like, like stretch the defense, but then will drop in? And he was like, yeah, that's just a striker, man. Like, you don't need to complicate this. Like, I was definitely overcomplicating things, and I feel like I do that sometimes. So a clear explainer of positional play was very much useful. So you were the Bobby Warshaw in that conversation? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the level of detail Bobby gets into. I'm Maybe. impressed that you've managed to listen to that already, because that was put out relatively late yesterday evening. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, uh, of course, of course. But again, part of that is because I struggle with positional play and, and I, the ideas behind it. I think just because the idea of such a unified approach and the amount of preparation, like I just thought of 
what we would have to do in our practice sessions to make that happen, and it makes my head hurt, and I'm aware that yeah. we could not do it. Yeah, so that level of right? detail Once is a week session, insanity. you're not going to do it. Not so much, now. So can I ask you, do you, do you genuinely think you have a better understanding of it after listening to that episode? Because yes. that would be the ultimate endorsement for Soccer 101. Yeah, I do, I do. I mean, certainly combined with this series where we're learning more about like the philosophy and evolution of tactics, that definitely yeah. helps. The more Pep Guardiola is involved in our conversations, the more I think we learn more about it. But yeah, no, it definitely... Uh, helped like solidify a lot of it, and then just the basic ideas of like the ball doesn't do the work. You should make the other team do the work, and that's how it all happens. All right. I'm also hoping that people listen to that episode and have, have a window into what Greg Berhalter is trying to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it will make a lot of sense for U.S. national team fans in that way. All right. Should we get back to today's match? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, okay. It's Hanved mm-hmm. versus Manchester City. I have concerns for Hanved. I have many concerns. My first concern for Hunred is that the majority of their national team players, their very best players, are in the attack. There's at least a couple of defenders who do not make the Hungarian national team, and that worries me a little bit. I don't know a lot about them. There's not a lot to read about them. It feels like maybe they're a little bit um, high-powered forwards and slightly less powered defensively, and that scares me up against Sterling and Sané and De Bruyne and Aguero and or Gabriel Jesus. Yeah, uh, I, I will. I will not disagree with that. I will instead double down on yeah, like like the four starting attackers for I think the Hungarian national team play for Honved, and then I think you've got uh, Bosic and the goalkeeper, uh, and that's pretty much it when it comes to the defensive side, uh, which is important to note because even that goalkeeper I believe gets uh, arrested and like sent to another <laughs> club and detained for a while. That's what happens when you're playing under like a Stalinist regime. So uh, if maybe you don't also have that stability because you might have players pulled out but yes against man city i would be very concerned i have a reason why maybe they might survive for a little while but i would also note that like this system while revolutionary at the time does get nullified fairly quickly it's what happens in i think 1954 it is um yeah germany uh in 1954 basically sep herbiger their coach just man marks uh it would have been uh what was the fellow's name for the national team nandar uh Hidekuti? is that how Hidekuti, you pronounce it yeah yeah uh basically i, I say it without three question marks in the middle of it that's probably the way to do it uh <laughs> but basically he just man marks him he just has i think beckenbauer just sit on him and that completely nullifies their yeah. entire attacking approach because they don't have this attacking fulcrum this hub that and other teams were sort of reticent to change their approach pep Guardiola certainly would not be and i think would very quickly recognize that that's the key performer um i mean I have, big, big picture ahead. here taylor is that yeah this is revolutionary in 1954 mm-hmm. but we are what 60 years later yeah and multiple sort of generations down the line of taking this possession style of football and perfecting it and changing it and positional play is sort of like the uh the what great great yeah. grandson uh, yeah. of several several of what Hunved were doing and it's just been fine-tuned and perfected and tweaked and it's got lots of extra wrinkles in it and I think the way that the English were so mesmerized and confused by what Hunved were doing mm-hmm. I feel like the Hunved players and coaches and maybe even the Hungarian press would be mesmerized by what Manchester City are doing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, literally, I think one of their players uh, in, in that maybe the Wolves game or maybe it was the uh, England uh, national team game, they say, like, yeah, a new system is always going to beat the old system because the new system, or at least regularly will, is designed to deal with the kind of vulnerabilities to exploit the vulnerabilities of the older system. So playing against a WM or a 2-3-5, a 4-2-4, uh, would probably be 
pretty strong, but then when you're playing against a 4-3-3, which is what Man City are probably going to bring out, you're automatically overwhelmed, and now you're going to have some problems there. Here is where I'm going to say, though, that I will give them like the first 30 minutes, is I do think that we should incorporate some of what we've already talked about from Honved into this game, and I think that since it's City traveling to Honved for this one, they should not be allowed to research or watch any footage about this team, since that would have been period appropriate. So I think for the first 30 minutes, maybe well, they've they got to try to figure they out what should... Honved are doing. I mean, they should do it before they get on the magic train. Um, <laughs> I, I would argue that there's not enough footage yeah. to do available to do proper video scouting to the degree that Guardiola and his staff would mm-hmm. usually do, right? Yeah, so that's at a massive disadvantage true. watching like some really grainy clips and like five minute highlights of Kosic. There's just, you know what I mean? There's just, there's not the information out there, even if they wanted to, even if they were given time before they got on Christopher Lloyd's train, uh, if they were given time to research, they still yeah. couldn't do it. No, no, they could not. And instead, what they probably would do is rely on their own individual strengths and their own ability to adapt as a team. They being Man City in this, or, yeah. yeah, Man City in this case. That like, what I envision happening is, first of all, I, I, I don't think I'm not being discourteous, but I do think Man City would probably destroy Honved, and I think it's probably a lot of them scoring goals early and then doing a little bit of tiki-taka, like bringing that back and keeping the possession and making Honved run and getting them stretched and getting them tired and yeah. frustrated and then kind of exploiting the gaps that open up as a result. All right, but let's give Honved some credit with the sure. weapons they've got, right? Yeah. So we talked about Pushkas's uh, shots, mm-hmm. right? He can still strike a ball. So yeah, if Pushkas can get away from Fernandinho, find a little space in front of, say, either Vincent Company and Otamendi or Otamendi and Stones or whomever it is in central defence, there is still a genuine threat from that left foot of Ferenc Pushkas. Hitting things really hard and very much on target top corner, that is a skill that doesn't go away. No. I mean, it's, it's essentially, I would, I would say it's like sort of like a much slower but much better from distance and up close finisher like Jamie Vardy. And we do know <laughs> that that can be problematic to Pep Guardiola if you're trying to hit on the break, if you're just trying to kind of overwhelm and overload on the counter. It does seem like this Hanved team could very much do that and could do it via some good passing as long Wait. as they're able to find that space. But why are you saying Vardy? Because Vardy's more about running in behind, and I'm talking about Pushkas's shots from distance. Are you saying they're I, similar, or are you saying it's just a, a an existential threat in the same I'm, way? I'm trying to think about if Man City could like be uh, kind of hampered by a one like world class player, and then a team of people who can kind of uh, help like him shine essentially. And and I'm trying to think of a team in which basically you think of this individual goal scorer who caused Man City problems while the rest of the team sort of did their job. The first one that came to mind was uh, Leicester City. Like with that sort of sitting back and then countering through Jamie Vardy, that's what I maybe could see Honved trying to do. Like I'm trying to find a scenario in which it isn't just they man-mark Pushkas, they man-mark Machos, and they're sort of nullified from that point in an attacking way. I mean, I think the main thing is that Hanved expect to have the ball, right? Hanved were the possession uh-huh. team that liked to move the ball around. And I think Manchester City just do a better job of keeping the ball. And they deny Hanved of the thing that they like to do. I think yeah. it's, in many, many ways, it's that simple. Um, one of the weapon, I'm trying to give Hanved as, as much chance as possible here, though. Mm-hmm. One of the weapon that we know Hanved have is Budai, the winger, crossing to Kochis. The sort of uh, not quite centre forward, he plays like either inside left or inside right. Kochis was known as Golden Head. 
Um, and I've seen a lot of footage, you'll see Koch's headers, where he really does rise above defenders. Um, and he's got this wonderful way of heading the ball sort of down and into the, into the corners. It's almost like his headers are as accurate as Pushkas's shots from distance. So I think I you might give, be reaching there a little bit. <laughs> I would give Koch's, well, just in terms of it's always going in the corner, right? It's yeah. not just like vaguely on target. Mm-hmm. It, it's really like accurately down and in, into the side netting. Yep. I would give Honved a decent chance of Koch's scoring or at least getting a few headers on target if, if Budai was allowed to swing some crosses in. Yeah, which, which he may well be because if we have a Man City team that have, say, like Sterling and Sané and they're both like boots, boots on the touchline playing wide as wingers, maybe you have some, like, some of those uh, like fullbacks tucking inside a little bit. Maybe that does open up some space out wide for some uh, like get to the end line and crossing it in for the golden head to finish off. <laughs> but I think we both know yeah. that once Manchester City, for example, spread the yeah. field out and possess the ball mm-hmm. and move it around, it's going to be something Humved have never seen before. Um, I would argue the pace of the Manchester City players is something that Hamved have never seen before. Um, and those zippy little forwards like Aguero and Jesus, they're sort of the next generation of the yeah. not big bustling number nine. Yeah. Again, several generations beyond a more mobile forward into the world of Aguero and Jesus. This is, this is Manchester City's game all the way. Yeah, I would say like 4-1 maybe. At least, yeah. yeah. I'd say half-time 4-1. <laughs> but I do think Pep Guardiola probably has like respect for this team in that like anybody who I think tries to do something different in an interesting way from an attacking standpoint seems to uh, get respect from Pep Guardiola and maybe seems to kind of like factor into his thinking a little bit so I feel like maybe he wouldn't want to go too brutal in this game the way he would against like a more like deliberately defensive team that wants to disprove what he's doing I've thought of one more killer thing that Manchester City have that mm-hmm. I can't resist getting in there. We mentioned like early in the Manchester City profile, um, Ederson's distribution. Yeah, that was shocking in the Premier League in 2017. Forgot about that. Yes. I have seen um, Hunved and Hungary's goalkeepers kicking the ball upfield in ways that would be questionable in the amateur league that we play in. <laughs> Punt has never been a more accurate word yeah, than describing very... some of that kicking. Either floaty and yeah. off target, or sometimes, sometimes just like directly to the opposition. Compare that, contrast that with Aderson, top of his own box, just pinging a ball as if he was Rio Ferdinand or Ronald Koeman <laughs> out yeah. to the wing or low into the feet of an attacker. And Hanved would just be like, "What is happening here? This yeah, is I'm not pi- fair." I'm picturing like a forty. Why yard... does that man have tattoos on his neck? <laughs> First of all, that's weird. I don't know what to make of that. I'm not. We're Hanved players. This is disconcerting. But second of all, <laughs> yeah, I could picture Aderson like pinging a 40-yard ball between two Hanved players into the feet of Fernandinho, who, like, turns, plays it to uh, David Silva, and then it's just, like, a series of one-twos up the field with Kevin De Bruyne, and then suddenly Sergio Aguero's there for the tap-in, and Hanved are perplexed. <laughs> Here's the only way Hanved win this game, Tyler. Yeah. Immediate conscription of all Manchester yes. City players <laughs> into exactly. the Hungarian army. They conscript Jurgen Klopp and the entire Liverpool side into their team, and then they go at it and we see what happens. I mean, we joke, but they've done it before. It's how they got good to begin with. (laughs) I doubt that's going to happen, but you never know uh, if time travel becomes a reality. All right, so we're giving Manchester City this game. We are. Uh, We are. Before we move on, I would like to move to today's sponsor, Let's do it. Today's show is sponsored by... Sunday Scaries. Mm-hmm. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that are super consumable and easy to take on the go. Dale, are you familiar with like the the Sunday Scaries idea? Like not the company itself, but the like f- that phrase itself. 
I'd never heard the phrase before, but I understand it now. Is it? It's essentially like that anxious, stressful feeling you get Sunday night when you've got to go to work Monday morning. It's basically Precisely. when when Game of Thrones was over. <laughs> you were. <laughs> You maybe had a half-hour comedy to watch. You maybe had an episode of Veep. After that, you're staring into the abyss. It, the abyss, indeed. Yeah, I didn't know about it until uh, our friends Jeannie and Daniel, uh, whom you know, uh, they do, I think, in, like once a month, they do a Sunday Scaries party where they, it's like, hey, it's not going to be that scary. Come over, have some potluck, hang out. It's all going to be fine, which I do appreciate. <laughs> but if you don't have the potluck option and hanging out with friends, which we do not currently have, uh, you could also go the CBD route. Uh, and CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 makes them super, super consumable. They've got vitamin content, but then they're also going to help you relax calm down a little bit be less scared about it being sunday night slash about to be monday but also just be less scared about you know all things in general (laughs) so we have been shipped samples i haven't tried mine yet i think they arrived either last night or this morning i'm not sure what time my mailman comes Uh, there's a package outside that i think is my sunday scaries so i'm genuinely looking forward i'm gonna try it my wife's gonna try it and we are we're gonna report back this week on the total soccer show Um, i'm planning to anyway Daryl lives in a part of Richmond uh, where your mail is delivered uh, the day it's supposed to be, and then mine should be here in another couple days. <laughs> um, but if you would like yours to uh, hopefully arrive at your doorstep, uh, you can order your Sunday Scaries, and you can get 25% off your first order with the code SOCCER at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com, and enter the code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what product might be best for you. So go to sundayscaries.com and use code SUCKER. All right. Thank you very much to Sunday Scaries for sponsoring today's episode and for making us feel less anxious about the Monday to come. Uh, Thank you very much to this next matchup because it's one that I wasn't as excited about, even though I probably should have been. You were on it right away, I think, because you got a love for that Barcelona team. But we've got Barcelona 1992, the Cruyff Dream Team, versus the Cosmos of 1977 uh, and that era. Not the New York Cosmos, because they only want to be Cosmos, because they're a global brand, Daryl. We should recognize it accordingly. They briefly changed the name, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Oh, dear. All right. Yeah. So let's start with Barcelona, because Barcelona were drawn at home in this game, right? So this is Johan Cruyff's Barcelona team. He took over in 88, luckily after a sort of failed revolution within the Barcelona team that yep. led to Cruyff taking over, a load of players being sold, the players who had tried to overthrow the president. Um, and so Cruyff really had the opportunity to build the team that he wanted, and he revolutionized football forever. Yeah. I mean, it really really is, uh, like, perfect, like, circumstances coming together to set the stage for him to essentially just be given carte blanche to do whatever he wants, and that is precisely what he does. And that's why this team became known as the Dream Team. Mm -hmm. Also partly in tribute to the USA basketball team. Did you know that? Um, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, Barcelona had hosted the Olympics in 1992, so whatever that Dream Team was, is that the Jordan team? I don't know if Jordan's on that team. Yeah, so... That, that was like a phrase that was in the air. And then Barcelona was so like magnificent in that 1992 season uh, that they start, the, the Spanish press started calling Cruyff's team the dream team, like as and, good as Jordan and Co. And again, if you are a recent to like medium recent uh, convert to soccer, or if you haven't gone back and looked at the history of it, you might think like, oh, it's a really good Barca team. Like, yeah, they have those all the time. Why are we calling this one the dream team? And that's where it's important to kind of look at the history of Barcelona, simply to say that before Cruyff comes in, they'd won three titles in 30 years. Cruyff arrives, they win four and four. Since then, they've won 12 more league titles. And I would argue those 12 league titles 
come about because Jurgen, uh, not Jurgen Klopp, Johan Cruyff is there and establishes all that he established and kind of sets things in motion. They also win one European Cup under your, uh, Jurgen Klopp. I keep doing that, Johan Cruyff, and then add four more after he's gone. So again, we sort of you can look at this as the period in which Barcelona pivot to become what they are today. No European Cups before Johan Cruyff comes along. Excuse right. me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, at, like when your Johan Cruyff is there, I'm not he wins correcting the first you. One. I'm not correcting you. I'm okay. underlining. I'm underlining okay. yeah. just how important that is in terms of yeah, how yeah. people conceive Barcelona right now mm-hmm. and where they were in the 90s, where they were a big team, but they hadn't had actual tangible European Cup success. Mm-mm. Cruyff is the man that delivers the European Cup to Barcelona in 1992. That's why I chose this year as sort of the peak of yep. Cruyff. Um, but then also he establishes, I mean, La Masia was already there, but he establishes the idea of like, this is the way we play. We play uh, juego de posición, positional play. We play there it the is. style that is inherited by uh, Rijkaard a little bit and Guardiola, especially in the future. But he has the young players playing it. The reason we get Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets and Messi coming through La Masia is because Cruyff establishes the way that they play at La Masia um, in the early 90s. I want, I want to double down on that for a moment to say that, like, literally some of those players would not have come through because at the time there was, I think, unofficially but officially a height requirement yes, that if you, you wanted to be, come through La Vasia, yeah. Yeah, you must be this tall to play for Barcelona. Exactly. So he gets away from that, uh, and they do sort of em- embrace this idea of the three Ps of uh, positioning, pressing, and passing, and then you've got the 4-3-3 that he wants everybody playing, and he gets kind of everybody to buy in. Uh, and that's where you get the stories about like Iniesta and Xavi growing up watching Pep Guardiola. Yeah. Like, that, that's how that happens, and that is amazing that he's able to do that, but he... influences this team in a lot of other ways. The Dutch goalkeeper was one that I thought was really interesting in that they go from having this sort of like, nope, the goalkeeper stays on his line and he makes the saves and that's what it's supposed to be about. You have the Dutch idea of the sweeper keeper who comes off and is part of the team and helps kind of facilitate possession and that's what Johan Cruyff starts teaching and practicing and puts in Sergio Busquets' dad who's not a good goalkeeper but is good enough (laughs) with his feet that he can make it work. But Zubi is the main keeper, right? So Zubi yeah. is still the guy that is the starting goalkeeper, but Cruyff just introduces this new concept. Zubi is for 92. Uh, later on, it becomes Busquets because Zubi cannot, like, does not raise his game to the point where he can handle the passing and moving that is required. Uh, and so, yeah, then Busquets, like, I think at one point Cruyff has Zubi doing, like, outfield practices to try to get him to be better on the ball, and it just <laughs> doesn't quite take. But yeah, for 92, it's Zubi for All sure. Right, I'll tell you what, stick with me in 1992, sure. because that's sure, the sure, sure. year they win the European Cup. Mm-hmm. And so that's the sort of period, that's the dream team period. That's the, the period I want to talk about at least initially because I think what mm. happens after is also interesting sure sure um, so I have the formation in 1992 as Cruyff coming in and after a few years he's established a 3-4-3 yep. which was absolutely revolutionary at the time right and it's not even like three guys who are just known for defending it's mostly all about Ronald Koeman playing as the center of the three defenders and being the guy that carries the ball forward. So Ronald Koeman, the Dutch defender, can dribble the ball out of the back, can find passes out of the back, like really risky passes, but can find the feet of people, can hit these big diagonals and can hit big balls in behind. So Ronald Koeman essentially can do everything from the heart of this 3-4-3. And the two other defenders are essentially just required to be mobile enough that they're essentially playing centre-back and full-back at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that, and those, that is revolutionary. Those would be uh, Sergi Barjuan and Albert Ferrer, both of whom also not tall. So uh, maybe wouldn't have been able to play in this system, at, at, or at play at all, certainly not in this system were it not for Johan Cruyff, but they are very much integral. I want to talk about uh, Komen for a moment, though. Did you happen to look up his goal-scoring rate? 
Well, I know that he took penalties and he also hit a mean free kick. So his goal scoring rate is going to be artificially inflated from the penalty spot. 239 goals at club level, 39 yeah. more at club level than Patrick Clivert. Yes, this man can hit <laughs> that a is- ball. Amazing. Yeah, and he joins from 1989, uh, in 1989, and it seems like he, uh, despite joining from, I think, PSV, he and Michael Laudrup essentially go to Barcelona because they want to play for Johan Cruyff. Because yeah. Johan Cruyff is this just such important figure, both as a player and then as a coach for what he had done with Ajax, that you have people who want to go play for him, who want to get to kind of learn under him and learn under his tutelage, and then it goes well, and then you have other people coming in who want that, and that kind of leads to sort of a lot of where Barcelona are today. So I think that influence uh, matters massively as well. I want to get through the shape of the team sure, as well. Sure, so sure. back three, that's mm-hmm. a big deal. A lot of teams hadn't, hadn't done that in the style that Guardiola was doing it. 3-4-3 three, three is important because Cruyff really wanted a diamond midfield, but yep. then also only three, de- three defenders behind and three attackers ahead. That means you always have four guys in central midfield. At the base of the diamond, the key guy who he brings in from the Barcelona youth team is a young, I think he's 20 when he wins the 92 European Cup, Pep Guardiola. Yep. Almost unrecognisable Pep Guardiola. He's got hair. He's got That's hair. number one. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have a lot of stubble. He mm. is the guy that everything goes through, right? He, he does like, seem angry all the time, so that's kind of stayed consistent. I think he seems intense. Yes, that's right? what I mean. Yeah, that's He's a very way to put it. intensely focused on yes. this. I love this new way of football, and I am mm-hmm. 100% in on it, right? So it's Guardiola distributing the ball everywhere. Like Kuman steps forward, Guardiola steps back and fills in. One of those wide centre backs goes forward, Guardiola steps back and fills in. He's weirdly. The one of the least famous at the time, but most important players on that team. He is. I, I don't want to derail you from getting through the tactics. I just wanted to make one quick point about Pep Guardiola here, which is that uh, when Cruyff comes in, there's this idea like, well, you can't. He can't play holding midfielder because holding midfielder is obviously you got to run around and you got to make tackles, and and Pep can't do that. He's good in one v one scenarios, and Cruyff was basically like, yeah, I know that. That's not what you're doing. You're doing this, and like structures it in such a way. He basically structures the position so it suits all of Pep's strengths and none of his vulnerabilities, which feels very much like a Pep thing that he does now as a manager. But it gets the best out of him, and really is why I have Pep as the key part of anything that Cruyff does at Barcelona. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. All right, so we're back in this diamond midfield, right? Guardiola's yep. at the base, making things happen. Um, the wide guys, or wide-ish in this diamond, I mean, it changes, right, throughout yep. history. The, the two I saw starting in the couple of games I watched were Eusebio, not that one, but a surprisingly good one who I'd never really heard of before, <laughs> and a player called Amor, who I was not familiar with mm-hmm. um, either. Um, then the tip of the diamond is Baquero, who I think is one of those underappreciated attacking creative midfielders. He was like the number 10 um, for long stretches for this really famous Barcelona team. His son right now um, is on the books at Toronto. He won the Herman Trophy a couple of years ago and he was on loan at Phoenix Rising. Is it uh, John Baquero? John Baquero, yeah. yeah. Um, he's right. currently playing in the United States. His dad, Jose Marie Baquero, when I watched this Barcelona team in action, I watched a couple of La Liga games, he is so clever. Just moving around, quick little passes, quick little yeah. flicks, unexpected moves. Baquero really was the guy that made a lot of things tick going forward. And Taylor, we haven't even got to the forward line because no. that's where it gets really, really exciting. I'm going to start with the least it. exciting because it's the name mm-hmm. least people will know. Um, Chiki Bagheristan. Yep. So a name the- that I've never fully known how to pronounce. I always just kind of skim right past it. <laughs> so he's the current director of football at Manchester City. He has yep. worked with uh, Guardiola a lot. It kind of starts here, right? He's the winger on this team. The other two attackers are Christo Stoichkov mm-hmm. and Michael Laudrup. 
two yeah. absolute geniuses. Which do you think of as more genius? Because I feel like I'd go Laudrup, and then I would say that you have to go with Stoichkov as a temperamental genius. Fair enough. Yeah, I would go Michael Laudrup as the genius, especially yeah. if you describe genius as someone who sees things in a different way and sees yeah. things that other people don't see. Every time I watch this Barcelona team, they do a magnificent job of essentially the same positional play that Guardiola uses now, right? Where they're always creating angles, always moving the ball, always overloading the opposition and surprising people. But it's Laudrup who is picking out passes that you can't even see until he makes them, right? They're just an yeah. angle isn't there, but he finds the angle to play the ball through. He's an absolutely incredible footballer, Michael Laudrup. And I'll just add that like your definition of what makes him a genius is almost certainly how Johan Cruyff would describe a genius. So I think <laughs> that, that probably sense. explains the affinity early on. It, it fades a little bit uh, fairly quickly, but yeah. in the beginning, very strong relationship because... Cruyff basically wants players who who think the way he did, does or did as a player and now does as a manager and then can execute. And he brings in people like Michael Laudrup, who certainly can. So too can Stoichkov, who can hit a ball, my friend. He can he hit a ball. He certainly can. I have Stoichkov. him as a... Go ahead. What? I was just going to say he's a ball of energy plus a ball of technique plus a ball of physicality with a gold chain on top. Yeah, doesn't you say ball? Do you feel like he's like a pent-up thing ready yes. to yeah, be unleashed in thing. any direction? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> waiting he, to be unleashed. <laughs> he has a left foot and a left-footed shot that I think uh-huh. rivals French Pushkas. Yeah. Um, he's also like, maybe genius is the wrong word. I'm going to say inventive. Yeah. Because he has lots of clever little moves as he receives the ball to just beat a player with a quick touch here and away you go, right? Because he's mm-hmm. a really quick, quick player, but also muscly and stocky at the same time and really capable of being like a predator in the box but also coming deep and connecting play in a false nine kind of way um, that he's a big part of again what makes this Barcelona team so absolutely beautiful to watch but also really really deadly and then also red cards while we're talking about deadly <laughs> I think he gets 10 in his career as a forward that's a lot that's it a is. lot to get it is um, so in his okay. Barca career I should add he gets 10 I, um, I've, I've sort of waxed lyrical mm-hmm. about this 3-4-3 Barcelona yep team from 1992 it does get even more star power in the future yep. right there are additions made to this team i feel like mm-hmm. i should turn it over to you to talk about the additions since i've spent so long talking about this classic lineup no i mean it, it's it's it makes sense and i appreciate you doing it because as you add more star power not surprisingly things get a little bit more confusing because you've got to find a way to kind of fit it all in and the biggest one would be romario arriving in 1993 yeah um he I think the thing that I enjoy the most about watching Romario is that he constantly seems to be waiting for the ball to catch up to him, which is not to say that, like, oh, he constantly gets under-hit passes. It's just that he's that quick that he has to sort of be like, come on, come on, and now we're away. Uh, And he is genuinely electrifying to watch. But in this era, he comes in, he immediately says you've signed the best uh, goal scorer of all time. He says he's going to score 30 goals. He does just that. Mm -hmm. And he completely tears up La Liga, goes to the World Cup, tears that up as well, wins the World Cup, and then kind of sort of implodes after that because he's very excited to have won the World Cup. And I think Storchkov himself said that uh, that Romario never came back from Rio after the World Cup. Yeah. But for that, for that season from 93 to 94, he was all over the place. So too was Storchkov and so too were goals. I mean, that was a season where they had the magic three of Romario, Storchkov and Laudrup just yep. for that one year, right? Mm-hmm. Romario falls off a little bit because of what, everything you just mentioned. I believe Laudrup leaves at the end of 94 and goes to Real mm-hmm. Madrid, I want to say. Um, I think so he goes back to... Some, he goes somewhere else random and then he goes to Madrid and okay. then turns it on even more. 
But there is there is one year of Stoichkov, Romario, yep. Laudrup, and I feel like it's really unfair that Chiki Bagiristan gets overlooked because mm-hmm. that's the trio that everybody thinks of. But maybe the better team was the '92 team, where maybe the um, the parts were less famous, but they maybe fit together much better. I mean, yes, and I think fit together with less uh, difficulty. Like yeah. Romario and Stoichkov, apparently very similar in that they thought that, like they're big personalities. They want the ball. They want to score the goals. They want to be front and center, and they both have that mentality. And so early on, from what I read, they kind of hated each other because they both had the same idea. They and then that level of competition, Cruyff stokes it because he likes that competition. He likes those personalities, and they end up being. I think Stoichkov is Romario's godfather to one of his kids, or vice versa. Like they become best friends for a period of time, and that's when you have this strike force clicking and scoring, destroying Manchester United, leaving Sir Alex Ferguson dumbfound. A fairly comprehensive win that one. That was my introduction to this team. I watched. I remember watching that game uh, live and being like, "Wow, what is yep. this? What yes. is this? This is incredible." And obviously, I, I was young. I wasn't sophisticated enough to really know what I was seeing, but I knew I knew it was special. And I'm, I've really enjoyed. Um, I've really enjoyed this whole thing of going back and. Uh, like watching like games, especially from the nineties where yep. there's there's footage available. Late eighties, early nineties where there's footage available and I'm roughly aware of everybody, but I didn't quite know what was going on. And now I, I think I have a better eye to understand what's going on. I found that really, really enjoyable. Yeah, I, it, yeah, because you I, again, I think as you don't have the drama of like the moment you're not watching it live, you can kind of go back and look for the specific moments and kind of see how it's evolving, and then you can combine that with reading about what the tactical approach is or how they're trying to change things, and then you see that on the field, and it gives you a much greater understanding of how just good Johan Cruyff was at, in this era as a manager and how good these players were to sort of incorporate it, and it is this as a, a, as a result a very revolutionary approach that certainly pays dividends. Shall we move on to their opponents? Yeah. Okay. Not so much a revolutionary approach, although I guess for the time period it was, but something that I feel like uh, teams have often looked to is, let's stockpile some talent and see what happens. That's basically what happens, right? We are looking at the 1977 Cosmos. So the Cosmos, they're based Mm. in New York. Or actually, they play in in New Jersey, right? They play in Giant Stadium. Um, But it's really the New York Cosmos is how most people know them. So Pele had been in the league for a few years, right? Um, but he'd never won the soccer ball, the NASL championship. Soccer um, ball, just to clarify. That's if what I said. Like, He's never won a soccer ball? Oh, it's, like, that's, sorry, that's just my accent. I said, I said soccer it ball. I'm sure it sounded weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as Jimmy Carr said, this is how it's supposed to sound. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pelé's been in the league a few years, but he hasn't won the soccer bowl. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, my guess is that Cosmos just go out and say, all right, we're going to stockpile this team then. So they... Uh, partner Pele with Carlos Alberto he's mm-hmm. 1970 World Cup winning captain Capita uh, Pele calls him um, Franz Beckenbauer de Kaiser yep. um, also joins and plays on the New York Cosmos and then you've already got uh, Chinalia um, mm-hmm. Nelson Marais is another like former Santos teammate um, of Pele's this is and then it's um, I actually don't know all the names of the other guys like Bobby Smith Steve Hunt Werner Roth, assorted Americans and Englishmen make up the team, essentially, right? Yeah, like Terry Garbett, I think I played for like six different English clubs, and yeah. he's one of the other midfielders. And yeah, but he's, the, not, I had but he's not like an England international, right? No. It's three Americans, three Brazilians, three Brits, and then an Italian and a German, coached by a South African Italian. Wow. Yeah. It's also, by 1977, it's a 37-year-old Pele. Yeah, So when you, problem. I look at the footage, he's still magnificently talented, right? Mm-hmm. 
but he does not have the acceleration to go past uh, too many people. Like, he's not burning through defences. Like, when we watched him, because Santos are in this tournament as well, right? We watched him in the early 60s for Santos, which is, what, more than, 15, more than 15 years ago. Good now Lord. you're seeing a guy who is more interested in putting his foot on the ball, and he's still got the moves to just shake somebody off and then, like, hit a beautiful through ball or go past someone just enough to get a shot away. But it's not quite the same. Would, would you agree watching Pelé yeah, at this time? I, I totally would. It, it's... Like, from an amateur perspective, as I've gotten older, it is that feeling of, like, oh, I used to get on the end of that cross, or I used to be able to outrun or, like, make sure I close that angle down and I'm not doing it as much anymore. And I told you before we started recording that I feel like I saw him miss a lot of chances or just not get as many clear-cut opportunities as I would have thought. Yeah. I think part of that is because, obviously, defenses are very aware of who he is and trying to deal with it. But I think it's also just that, yeah, at that age, you've lost a step. Maybe in the past you would have been able to create that extra yard of separation to then get a clean shot off. But if you can't do that, you're taking a much more contested shot. And I did think that in the final that I watched against the, the Sounders, uh, he, he misses, not misses, but like he doesn't really put that many shots on frame. He doesn't really get open very often. It's much more he's kind of dropping in and trying to help facilitate attacks uh, uh, which he does readily and quite well because he's Pele, but it's not <laughs> that prime next level can run in behind and destroy you sort of Pele. I 100% agree. In fact, the guy doing more of the running in behind is Chinalia, right? Yeah. Who's only mm-hmm. 30 at the time. And to me, Chinalia is the guy who's most into the cosmos. Yeah, I mean, Chinalia, like by all accounts, is... Chinalia, excuse me. A- uh, it's all good. Uh, is a, uh, I should also clarify that I was only correcting your pronunciation of soccer bowl uh, because it is such a ludicrous name for the championship. It's just the most like, well, they got Super Bowl. Soccer ball, I guess? Let's do that. But anyway, Canalia, yeah, I mean, I think he's the one who was happy to be, like, the main man for the Cosmos in a way that maybe Pele wasn't, at least initially. And he's, uh, Canalia is very arrogant, wants the kind of publicity, scores those big goals, and then runs off to celebrate by himself. Uh, uh, By all accounts, is the one who appoints Eddie Fermani, the the coach. He he has the former coach, like, moved on to the front office, and then he, like, handpicks the successor. So, yeah. I think Canalia definitely buys in and seems to have uh, stuck with them because he's still involved when they kind of try to resurrect that brand. I believe Canalia comes back and talks yeah. about it a lot. I will, I will give credit to the Cosmos organization. When they mm-hmm. decided, we're going to win the soccer bowl yep. with Pele, the move they make to bring in Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto, at least it's a move to essentially strengthen the defense. Right, because yeah. both of these guys. I know Carlos Alberto was a fullback in his heyday, right? When he scores that goal in the 1970 final, I think he's sort of an attacking right back that joins the attack late. Um, he comes to Cosmos and plays sweeper, right, at 33. Um, and the the footage I saw, he looked great at it. He was great yeah. at like going over and snuffing out trouble um, and making sure that that nothing happens. And then you've got Beckenbauer, who at this point in his career is also a sweeper, but because Carlos Alberto is there. He can play a little bit in front of Carlos Alberto and essentially play like it's sort of centre-back but sort of defensive midfield as well, right? So you really end up with a very strong spine of this Cosmos team because that they didn't just go out and buy another two forwards to play alongside Pele. They sensibly signed a couple of high-profile uh, classy defenders is what I'm Man, that's it. a really good point, Daryl, because this is the era of NASL once Pele comes over where you start getting, like, uh, like Cruyff goes, Eusebio plays in NASL. You've got a lot of, like, very talented players who go try their luck in NASL. Rodney Marsh, don't have- George Best. Yes, Robbie Marsh. That's Rodney, the same level. Rodney Marsh. <laughs> That's the same. Exactly. My point is proven. Um, um, but yes, my ignorance proves my point. Um, but in this case, like 
to go out and sign these very important defenders, it's a thing that we don't even see in Major League Soccer these days. We don't see a lot of <laughs> DP defenders because it's it's much more exciting to splash that money on the star names. And in a lot of ways, this contest ended up being really interesting to me, this game between the Cosmos and Barcelona, not even from a tactical standpoint yet, but from a, like, there are parallels there of... You've got like sort of a massive name player, then you kind of build around them, but you add key defenders in Ronald Koeman or Carlos Alberto and Franz Beckenbauer, and then you kind of lose it, though, because you have those star personalities. It becomes a little bit of a distraction. I would say Cosmos have lots of other issues uh, that factor into why they have the downfall they do, but there are some interesting parallels in my mind between the Cosmos and the 92 Dream Team of Barcelona. So let's get to the matchup then. Sure. I am going to say that unless the Cosmos can tempt Barcelona into a night out at Studio 54, yeah. Barcelona take this game. Yeah, I think this is an ideal matchup for Barcelona in many different ways. Because reading about them, especially, like I know you focused on that 92 team, but especially as the wheels start to come off with Romario, with Haji, with Stoichkov... They they sort of are a very hit-and-miss team, where one game they'll win 5-0 in the next game, Stoichkov will get a red card, and Romario won't do anything, and they'll lose 2-1 to to a team they should have absolutely beaten. So I think they're vulnerable. They can have those moments. Oh, absolutely. I would, and I would double down on that by saying, the game I watched, Ronald Koeman was absolutely magnificent yeah. against Valencia. This is in, like, late 91. Ronald Koeman also tries to dribble out of the back, gets tackled, and Valencia score. <laughs> See, that's that's not ideal. And I almost think that, like, this sounds disrespectful again. It, it's not meant to be. But, like, I almost think if they were playing Honved, I think Honved have a, are a tougher opponent for 1992 Barcelona than the Cosmos of that era. Because <laughs> Cosmos don't have the kind of depth across the board. They've got those big names. But as you mentioned, like, their wingers are Steve Hunt and Tony Field. We both know them, right? Of course, everybody knows Steve Hutton. Tony. Like, you don't have that 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 drop off is yeah, is pretty I mean, pretty big. All those guys who are not Pele, Carlos Alberto, yeah. De Kaiser, Canali is a high level player. Nelson yeah. Moraes is a high level player. I want to say pretty much everyone else is massively out of your depth here, Donny, when they're playing against Cruyff's Barcelona team, except they for Shet Messing. Except Shet Messing, the greatest Messi. goalkeeper of all time. Come on, of course, of course. Takes a wonderful photo as well. He, t- he uh, does. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like all of those, yeah. all of those guys will not have played against a team like Barcelona before. They mm-hmm. would not be able to chase down the ball as cross Barcelona move it around. Yeah, and then the, and then on top of that, like I think the reason why I drew the Honved like comparison is just because at least with Honved you have like a team that has been together for years and is sort of like playing this style that they've all had sort of beaten into them. Hopefully not literally, but maybe who knows Um, they like that. Like they're all going to be kind of up for it in a way that I imagine like 36 year old Pele is sort of going to be like, all right, whatever. I don't care about this. Like, like I've already, I've got my $3 million. I'm fine. There was a little bit of that in the, I took a look at at least three or four games from this season. Yeah. There were moments when Pele looked very casual, like, all right, Mm. let's just get this over with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yes. Yeah. (laughs) And I also noticed a lot of American defenders were very much like, it's my moment. I'm up against the great mm-hmm. Pelé, and I'm going to like take this very specific defensive shape. And you could see how focused and intense these defenders were, and because it's their moment to defend Pelé, right? Um, I'm going to imagine that the Barcelona defenders, um, including Koeman or uh, Nadal, uh, you know N- Nadal's uncle, mm-hmm. um, also played for this Barcelona team um, <laughs> as, a, as a centre-back, wow. Miguel Angel Nadal, He's not going to be intimidated by Pele, right? Mm-hmm. He know, I mean, he knows Pele's famous, but he's still perfectly willing to knock him over to win the ball. In a I way think, that it, I think like, American defenders of the time were not. It's like, um, 
like if you play against like a person who used to be a professional like 15 years ago, like you see those moments of like, oh, I get it. Like we played against Chirondolo and you can not even 10 years ago uh, was when he was a pro. But like you see those moments of like, oh, I get it. Like I get how he is. Yeah. It was as good as he was and is still very good. And I'm sure there would be that with Pele. But to your point, there would also be that moment where like, ooh, he like miscontrolled that by a yard. Or like, oh, he didn't chase that down. And slowly, if you're that defender, I think you're probably going to realize like, oh, he can, I can get at him. Like I can figure this one out yeah. because he is uh, where he is playing with the team he's playing with. If this were uh, a home game for the Cosmos, that turf looks horrifically unforgiving. And I think maybe <laughs> that balances some things out a little bit. I cannot imagine how Cruyff would... Uh, would instruct his team to well, deal was, with like astroturf on concrete. I was actually wrong to mention Studio Fifty Four earlier. I just checked, and uh, Barcelona are at home. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I mean, but maybe they could if they can tempt them to Studio Fifty Four. Then they're probably going to miss that game entirely. But <laughs> yeah, I think I think it might be tough to to distract this Barcelona team in this engagement. I'm I'm actually going to say that the the star power of the names Pele, Carlos mm-hmm. Alberto, um, Beckenbauer is what gets Cosmos into this tournament as one of the 32 teams. Also, yeah. the fact that we're in the United States also and this helps. is a famous team gets the New York Cosmos into this tournament. Outside of that, this New York Cosmos team has no business being in this tournament. Dude, it is it is fascinating to read about the Cosmos from an American versus non-American standpoint because a lot of the profiles you read, and even the documentary, the once-in-a-lifetime documentary, uh, like you get some of the like anarchy that was happening at that time, both from like a societal societal political level, but also just within that league. But it, you get this idea like, oh, is this free spending? It was all really exciting. You have George Best coming in. You've got Eusebio. You've got Pele. And then you read it like in Ball is Round. The way it's written about entirely is like this failed attempt to have like these two leagues who hated each other form and create the NASL. But it's all very like fly by night and we'll spend a bunch of money, but it's not going to work. Like. It's it's just such a different way of seeing this team. Yeah. As you might think of them as this iconic, like successful team, and I think everywhere else outside of this country, they're looked at more as like, oh yeah, that weird sideshow, like Harlem Globetrotters, where they brought in some stars, and it was like a well, thing they did for a while. Yeah, to put them in context, in a global context, a non-American context, it's no different to um, recently China spent all that money to bring yeah. players like Tevez go over and Oscar goes over and guys right. like that go over Drogba early on it, dude but, India but then, India would be the one but then wind it down yeah and India was the next one I was going to go to where they did um, a similar thing right and there were uh, Qatar have tried it and various other nations have tried it where you just spend a load of money get stars in and it never ever really lasts and I want to say the NASL is just one in a long line of those types of leagues but it yeah. feels special in the United States mm-hmm. because we're soccer fans because we want soccer to succeed and because there was a brief moment when I mean it did do it in a bigger way than some of those other leagues because you really did get Pele and Beckenbauer and Cruyff and Eusebio and George Best Um, it did it at a time when there were a lot of stars who were looking for big money and could get it for the very first time it's just more it's more commonplace now it's not such a big surprise it is not. And I think the thing that is maybe also not surprising with that entire conversation having been had is that, like, we haven't really even talked about how the Cosmos played. <laughs> like, we haven't talked about... I mean, like, what, four four two? Pele yeah. drops in a little bit, Chinalia stays up top mostly as the number nine, but give the ball to Pele and hope he makes something happen. There you go. Exactly. But I mean, <laughs> like, that is... That is Almost certainly, like, the pregame instructions that they were given. Like, you're not getting a lot of, like, hard-drilled practicing in which they work on rondos and learn how to, like, play this evolutionary style. 
They like because even some of the teams we've talked about with Hanved and Santos, they have this like, kind of style that's instilled in them that causes problems for team w- teams. With the Cosmos, it's just sort of like let's just get everybody in a way that kind of makes sense. And yeah. you guys know what to do, right? Let's put this on autopilot and see how we do. And it was good enough against other NASL yeah. teams in 1977. It is not going to be good enough against this dream team, Cruyff Barcelona team of 1992 there's just too many good players uh they're too sort of um too schooled in the possession football and uh, positional play and moving the ball around and coming up with creative ideas and like on the fly problem solving from michael Ladrup. um there is no way the cosmos can keep up and 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 i know we're talking about the 90 you're focused on the 92 team i have to have romario in here just for that one year when he was just completely unplayable and are undefendable or whatever you want to say and if you go back and watch some of the highlights especially the um the Madrid game when Barca win five nil and he does the the cowtail. Yeah. Dale, are you familiar with the cowtail? Yes. That like yeah, the cowtail combined with his like trademark like poke finish. There's just no way like even Beckenbauer, even Carlos Alberto. I feel like they're not hanging with that pace and that acceleration and that tight control. I think even some of the best players on the Cosmos are going to struggle with some of the best players from Barcelona. All right, so congratulations to Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. Yeah, you guys go through uh, vanquishing Hunved of 1954 to 56. And congratulations to Johan Cruyff's Barcelona with a young Pep Guardiola. You guys also go through. You've seen off Pelé and the New York Cosmos. The good news is Pelé's still in the tournament with that yep. Santos team. Beckenbauer is elsewhere in this tournament with that yep. Bayern Munich team that won three, mm-hmm. three uh, European Cups, right? So um, all is not lost for the big-name players, but their 30-plus versions do not, do not go through to the next round. Not so much, no. I still maintain hope that like in the next round, because we are just going to do a random draw once we have uh, the first round finished, I hope we get... I don't think I want Pep versus Pep, although that would be fascinating. I do really want a Pep Guardiola coached team versus a Johan Cruyff coached team or some combination of like Cruyff the player versus Pep the manager or something like that. I think that would be an absolutely fascinating game, but the, we'll see how the draw goes if and when we get there. The, when two, we get there. the two Barcelonas would be uh, magnificent. I would even yeah. say that's so good it should be back to the future part four. on a train on a train always (laughs) all right taylor let's wrap this up we will be back um tomorrow with our big bundesliga preview we are going to give you basically things to look out for as the bundesliga returns this weekend Um, i'm sure you know already it's may 16th um i assume it's on fox sports one i haven't seen confirmation of that yet but that's who has the rights 9 30 a.m the game i'll be watching is Dortmund versus Schalke. Yeah. I will be DVRing the Leipzig game, so I'm get a look at Tyler Adams. I hope that he's playing. I'm so excited. I'm so excited, yeah. So we're going to do uh, yeah, our like, preview, getting back in stride sort of show on Wednesday, yeah. and then we're going to be doing that uh, review of those games that we're aiming for Saturday, correct? Yes. Yeah, let's say the games are Saturday morning. We'll have that show out by Saturday evening. Sunday morning latest. Because we're not going out Saturday night, Taylor. That's also true. We're That's not, also true. Not anymore. Um, no. All right, Taylor Rockwell, I will say... Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again tomorrow.